Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Each week I talk with farmers and industry professionals to hear their stories and expert opinions on various industry-related matters that are relevant to both our farming and our urban communities. Let's take a quick look at the lamb and beef markets. Not too many complaints on the weather front, rain has fallen in many areas and things are looking pretty good as we head into Christmas. Aside from Northland and the East Coast, which have had some isolated days of 29-30 degrees heat, summer in the north is slow to develop. Otago and Canterbury has seen some variable weather conditions with strong wind at the beginning of December and a cooler turn dominated the second week with a dusting of snow in some southern areas. Cattle space is tightening up at the processes and as a result prices are back as well. All cattle slaughter prices have reduced by 10 to 15 cents a kilogram in the North Island. South Island prices are stable with little downside at this point. Getting in stock before Christmas will now be challenging given the big day is only one week away. The spring store market has ended but it did show good length given the uncertainty our international markets are throwing up. Both the North and South Island cattle store market weakened over the past fortnight. Wiener bull prices continue to be under pressure and this week South Island lines dropped by $20 a head compared to the week prior, selling for $330 to $400. Yearling bulls took a hit in the North Island, softening 15 to 20 cents a kilogram week on week, with further drops expected this week. This has been contributed to by farmers being unable to get two-year-olds away to processes in time. Based on these softening store prices, I see serious value in wiener bulls, which will yield good results as two-year-olds, and by that time, normality will have returned to our international markets and supply chains. Lamb sees $6.90 a kilogram being paid in the North Island and $6.80 a kilogram in the South Island. The mutton price has also had some downside last week, dropping to $5 a kilogram in the North Island and $4.90 a kilogram in the South Island. The outlook is promising for Easter trade into the UK and EU and strong demand from smaller Asian markets bodes well for post-Chinese New Year buying. Lamb store pricing is seeing similar downside as we approach Christmas. Average prices are quite close between the islands, but South Island lambs are being quoted in a larger price range, $2.50 to $3.10 a kilogram, compared to the North Island, $2.90 to $3.20 a kilogram. This week on Factum Agri, I talked with Professor David Norton to discuss his recent research on native vegetation on sheep and beef farms here in New Zealand and the benefit to farmers. Let's check in with him now. Hello, David. Thank you for your time today. Oh, look, you're welcome. I'm pleased to be here again. For those that may have missed the last time you were on the show, please can you tell me about the work that you do? Yeah, so my my, um, work is very much around um, working with farmers to help farmers try and find um, really good outcomes for native biodiversity on their farms, but within the context of, of their needing to be viable farming operations as well. So, you know, the work I do is very much focused on helping farmers get win-win outcomes, so native plants and animals benefit within a profitable, viable farming operation. And I do a lot of work from helping farmers understand what biodiversity they have, uh, helping them uh, monitor biodiversity on their farms, writing management plans to incorporate biodiversity into how they manage their farms. Fantastic. And just on that last time we talked, we did talk about biodiversity plans and how these are being integrated into farming systems. 
I understand you have recently published research on native vegetation on sheep and beef farms. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, that, that was a study that actually Beef and Land New Zealand commissioned and they were curious to know, you know, given all the um, sort of public interest in, in biodiversity on farms, just, just what's actually out there? Can, can we get a handle on how much is out there? So the paper that was published in the last few weeks was, was the final output on that bit of work. And what do we mean exactly by native vegetation? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess the the initial question that Beef and Lamb put to me, put to me was, well, can we get a measure of how much biodiversity is there? And of course, biodiversity refers to all of the species, whether they be animals or plants or invertebrates or fungi or whatever. And that's actually, that, that's almost impossible to answer. So instead, we decided to tackle it by trying to get an idea as to how much native vegetation was out there. And so by native vegetation, we're referring to forest and that's dominated by native species or wetland with native species or grassland uh, with tussocks and the like or, or, or or shrubland with Manaka or Kanaka or Madagari, and using that in a sense as a proxy for the overall biodiversity that might be out there, because because we we know if if, if the vegetation is dominated by native plants, um, then there's likely to be native animals there as well. So it's kind of like a, a a way to get a handle on that broader question about what native biodiversity is there by by looking at because we can map the native vegetation. Mm. How much native vegetation do you estimate is currently on New Zealand's sheep and beef farms? And what percentage is this of our country's total amount? Yeah, okay. So, so I probably need to take us back one step in answering that question as to how we did it. So what we did is that we took um, nationally available databases. So we have a thing called the Land Cover Database, which is, um, which is a, a satellite-based uh, remote sensing type of, of mapping of New Zealand that shows all the major vegetation types. So it shows pasture, it shows urban areas, it shows uh, native forest, it shows pine forest, it shows um, you know, crops and, and so on and so on. And so out of that database, we're able to pull out um, all of the area, all the types that are mapped as native vegetation. And then we took um, a, a, another spatial database uh, about land, um, land use or land ownership, and we're able to pull out all of the land parcels in New Zealand that are used for sheep and beef farming. And so then you lay those two on top of each other, and you can then start saying, well, how much native vegetation is there on sheep and beef farms? And it comes out at about 2.8 million hectares. Um, which is a pretty big number. Mm. Um, so 2.8 million hectares across sheep and beef farms has a is mapped as native vegetation. So it could be grassland, shrubland, wetland and forest. And that's about a quarter of all the native vegetation that remains in New Zealand. So of course we also mapped other other types of land use, particularly public conservation land. And of course we find that probably about two thirds of the remaining native vegetation is on public conservation land, which is what you'd expect, national parks and reserves. But importantly, a quarter of it is on sheep and beef farms. And I think the other thing we looked at was we looked at how much of that native vegetation was woody. So how much of it was forest, or how much of it was regenerating woody vegetation like Karnaka and Manaka that are moving towards forest or with appropriate management could move towards you know, native podocarp or beach forest or whatever. And the number for that one was 1.4 million hectares. And that's a, that's a bigger area than Fiordland National Park mm. um, of woody vegetation on sheep and beef farms spread around New Zealand. And it's about um, 
17, 20% of, of all the remaining native woody vegetation in New Zealand. Which areas of New Zealand have the highest concentrations of native vegetation on sheep and beef farms? Mm. And again, it's quite interesting when you look at those numbers um, and look at all the native vegetation and just look at the woody vegetation. So if we look at all of the native vegetation, the most important parts of New Zealand are Canterbury and Otago. Um, and that's because in Canterbury and Targo there are extensive areas of, of, of tussock grassland in the high country and the hill country that are still predominantly native and are used for sheep and beef farming. If we take the grassland out and just look at the native woody vegetation, I think the native woody vegetation is a really interesting bit because in most of New Zealand, in the areas where we farm, it would have been forest historically. So the native woody vegetation is, is, is really interesting. And then it gets a lot more um, intriguing with what the answer is. So places like Gisborne, uh, Manawatu, um, Taranaki, um, Northland, they start coming out as having significant amounts of native woody vegetation. And I think that's a really important point because those areas, those parts of New Zealand, say unlike Canterbury or Otago, also have relatively little public conservation land. So there's not that many reserves and parks and things in those areas. And that's telling us that then in those areas, and Gisborne I think is a real classic example, um, the whole East Cape area, um, that actually um, some of the most important remnants of native vegetation, native woody vegetation, is actually on sheep and beef farms. So sheep mm. and beef farms are really, really important for, uh, as repositories for this and looking after this vegetation. The biodiversity benefits are there, and we've talked about those previously, but how does this native vegetation on a sheep and beef farms potentially impact carbon sequestration? Yeah. Um, that is a really good question and a very topical question at the moment, of course. I think it's fundamentally important and my colleague Brad Case, who worked with me on, on this project here, has done a separate bit of work with um, Beef and Lamb just looking at how much um, carbon has been sequestered in, in all vegetation on sheep and beef farms, but native vegetation was a component of that. And, and it's really important. It, it's a significant amount. Um, and, and um, you know, that 1.4 million hectares of native woody vegetation is all, all growing, it's putting away carbon, it's sequestering carbon, and, and it has the potential to offset um, the emissions that are coming out of farms. Currently, native vegetation is not included in the ETS, so I, I suspect more work will be done in this area, but what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, can, can, can I comment on that? Because that, yeah. that's really interesting, because... Because yeah, you're right, it's not included in the ETS. And that's because the ETS is tied into the Paris Agreement and they've got this 1990 date. Yeah. Um, and of course, most of this native woody vegetation, not all of it, but most of it predates 1990. Um, mm. and, and so it's not eligible for the ETS, but it's still sequestering carbon. And, and if it's managed properly, it can sequester even more carbon. So it, it's got a huge potential. And I really hope that we can get the politicians to listen um, and to see that this is actually a, a free service that farmers are provided and there should be some some sort of um, you know reward back to the farmers for doing that. So do you think there's potential to actually take a look at pre-1990 and perhaps there's an opportunity to review that? Yeah, I, I think totally. And I think you know it's fair enough that um, farmers probably shouldn't be able to trade it on, on the open you know, carbon market. But I mean, you know, why couldn't they use it as part of their on-farm 
you know, carbon balance and say, well, look, I'm producing X amount of emissions um, and and I've got this amount of sequestration going on and, and then they can look at the residuals. So it may not be something that they can trade, but they could at least use within their own system, which at the end of the day is where their emissions are coming from, um, as, as to try and get themselves into a, a carbon neutral position. And farmers are taking this quite seriously. I mean, many farmers are protecting these areas, fencing them off, spending their own money in, in doing so. Are you seeing and hearing more, more and more farmers doing this? Yeah, look, there, there is a growing interest. It's, it's, there are many facets to it. Like, I think it's only, I can't remember the exact number now, but it might be only 5% of the native woody vegetation on sheep and beef farms is formally covenanted. But a lot of other farmers are doing their own initiatives and looking after it because we know that our forests, our native forests, don't do very well under pressure from grazing animals. And that's whether it's livestock, sheep and cattle, or whether it's deer and goats and pigs or, or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, certainly removing those degrading factors improves the condition of the forest and that improves the amount of carbon that's been sequestered. It improves the biodiversity values. It improves the water and the water quality downstream. It improves soil retention and all of those things. And lots of farmers are doing that. Farmers are, I guess it's the reason why farmers like to farm and they they work on their own and often remote areas. They're not out there waving the flag and and saying, hey, look at what I'm doing. But a lot of them are getting on on and doing it. But at the same time, it comes comes with quite a major cost to them. I mean, it's not cheap to put fencing in. It's Mm. not cheap to do these sorts of things. And I think what, you know, what from a government point of view, we can get massive returns from a relatively small investment to help farmers, to incentivise them to do this sort of work. Mm. And that leads me on to, I guess, a question around getting the balance right for farmers. On one hand, they are being praised and thanked for their important role in underpinning the economy. Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister, said this recently in Wellington, on the other hand, increased pressure is applied through tightening regulation. So where does the farmer win in all of this, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's another very good question. And I think, you know, that tension between, yes, you're doing a great job, but we're going to bring more and more regulations in is, is, is so critical to get that balance right. And I think I, I really worry about the proposed national policy statement on Indigenous biodiversity that's supposedly going to come in around April next year. And, you know, I, I feel if we put too much regulation in and, and we um, put so many rules on farmers, they've already got enough rules on them at the moment, they're just going to say it's too hard. I'll do the minimum I need to do to keep the regulator off my back and I'm not going to bother doing anything beyond that because it's just, it's too hard. Mm. And, and so I think we've got to get that balance right. And I mean, my, my own feeling is we need to have a level of rules because we do need to say what is significant, what is important, Mm. but we need to then have those rules set at a level where farmers can say, yeah, I can see why that, you know, that that remnant of forest is important or that alluvial shrubland is important. And and then we need to have support incentives then to um, facilitate farmers. And some of those incentives might be simply saying, well, you can use the carbon that's being sequestered to offset your emissions. Or it might be, look, we're going to provide some grants or free advice or we're going to you know, support you in whatever way um, to then try and uh, engender you know, ongoing um, work from farmers. I mean, I think farmers, you know, farmers, farmers farm because they, they, they love the environment. Farmers farm because they're passionate about the environment. But at the end of the day, they're also running businesses. They're, 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 uh, they're not doing it for free for they can't afford to do it for free. They've got to run a business. They've got to mm. support their families and, mm. and, and everything else. And, and so we've got to get that balance right. You know, I mean, I think if farmers are supported and incentivized 
my my impression with the farmers I work on, I work with quite a few now, is that they're really, really keen to do this work, but they but they need that support. They need that um, th those positive incentives rather than just you know all the you know thou shalt not do this type of regulation. Sorry, long answer. Indeed, I agree. And of course, with recent changes to the fresh water policy statement, we're seeing a similar thing there. Farmers are actually pushing back slightly and saying, well, a lot of the things in this policy statement are simply unworkable and unrealistic. And, and that comes down to, in my view, and with all the farmers and everybody I talk to on a regular basis, it's that there needs to be greater engagement uh, from Wellington to the farming community, which... For example, the freshwater policy statement, there simply wasn't enough engagement with the farming community on those changes. Yeah. And I don't think there'd be a single farmer in New Zealand that doesn't see the value in enhancing the quality of our waterways. Mm. I mean, I think everybody agrees with that. But I think the challenge is that, again, it comes at a cost. And I don't think there'd be a single farmer in New Zealand that doesn't want to do that work, but, but it's about setting about doing it in a way that's actually achievable and saying, look, you know, I can't fence my waterways off in one year or two years. It's, it's a 10-year program because it's going to cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and I've got to get reticulated water run and everything else. And it's it's trying to have an approach where where you can actually, the regulators are actually working with and, and listening to the farmers and developing a system that, that's pragmatic. I mean, it's all about pragmatism and we'll get the outcomes we want if we're pragmatic. Mm. So where to now in terms of the native vegetation research that's been published? Um, well, I think where we're working, I'm working very actively now, is um, back to what we talked about last time we talked, which is around farm management plans. I think mm. farm management plans are critical. Um, Beef and Lamb New Zealand are bringing out the new... Um, the new refresh farm plan in the new year. It's got a biodiversity module, which I'm happy to say that I helped write. Mm. Um, there's good guidance there around, um, you know, understanding what you've got and putting monitoring in place. Um, the new RMPP Farm Assurance Plus standard is also coming out in the new year. And that has an expectation that people supplying meat to, to red meat to the works will also have biodiversity plans and biodiversity monitoring in place. So I think that's important. But I think, and I will continue to run, and I talk to lots of catchment groups now, and as well as working with individual farmers about just trying to help them understand what is biodiversity, why is it important, how can you do this sort of stuff. But we do need government to still come to the party and provide that support. And that, that's probably the thing that I'm, you know, and I know many others are as well, are lobbying to try and get greater support from government for farmers. Um, but I think, you know, the management plan is a really important tool as a way to try and integrate these things. And it's really about thinking into the long term. You know, where do you want to be with your water, your biodiversity, your farm generally in 20 or 30 years time? What are the steps to get there? And then going about them systematically. And I, I like to think, and I was talking to a group of farmers down uh, Wakatip Way um, last year, we're talking about extensive wetlands. And, I, and, I, and my comment is, and my comment always would be, look, if we can show the regulators how we're trying to do things, you know, where the really sensitive areas we're going to fence off are, where the areas we're going to um, restrict animal numbers to certain levels, how we're going to do it this year, next year, in five years' time, then hopefully the regulators can see the sense in that and, 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 then, and then we can work forward as, in a partnership, really, is what we're after, isn't it, rather than as one against the other. Absolutely. And I was talking to a farmer recently and his view was that farmers by and large do the best that they can at any given time. And, and I agree with that. It's all about for them, they do the best they can with the information that they have on any given day. So 20 years ago, 
farmers are doing the best they can with the information they had. And I think today farmers are doing the same thing, except the information is simply getting better. Yeah, but the challenge still is that most farmers and the people that advise the farmers, and they're a really important group, so whether they're fertiliser companies, beef and lamb reps, land care groups, you know, regional council people, consultants, whatever, most of them don't have ecology training. And I mean, that's because they've, they've trained in other things. You know, they're great on forage or cheap genetics or, or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so I think one of the big challenges and, and probably the biggest thing we're going to be working on in the next year is to try and get funding. We're, we're applying to the um, Sustainable um, Food and Fibre Futures Fund, the funding to establish a, a biodiversity support resource, an extension resource to support farmers with what we're calling biodiversity ambassadors who can actually go out there. Because I'm only one person. I can't get to 25,000 pastoral farmers in New Zealand. But to have biodiversity ambassadors who can go out there, who can run workshops and field days and interact with, with farmers throughout New Zealand and help them help bring the knowledge to them so that they can then apply it. Because I think the lack of the, I think most farmers are aware of what biodiversity is, but they just don't have the, because they're not trained in it, they don't have the skills in ecology. So I, I, I think that's the best way government could support farmers to help them, you know, the transfer of that information across. So we're working on that and that's one of our big goals in the new year. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, if the country accepts and understands that Farmers in New Zealand are, are critical to the economy, the backbone of our economy, which, which they are, um, yet, and talked about earlier, on the other hand, are asking farmers to fall in line with tougher regulations, then the government actually needs to fund farm management plans or biodiversity plans to really help. I think you're right on the button there. Yep, totally. And I mean, look, I'll keep pushing for it, and we're trying to get this SFF, um funding for it. Um, for starters, but um, you know we've got to have systems that that help make it easy for farmers. Yes, there is a private benefit for the farmer because it's about market access and everything else as well. But I mean, a lot of it's public good stuff, and I think we've just got to get that balance right there as well, and and, and really support farmers. So I think that's that's a really important challenge for us. Mm, indeed, David, I thank you very very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas, and we'll catch up again in the new year. Thank you, Angus. And look, I really enjoy talking to you about this stuff and yeah, love to chat again. So you, you have a good Christmas as well and we, we will catch you in the new year, definitely. Thank you to David Norton for joining me on the show. His recent work shows that sheep and beef farms contain 24.5% of the total native vegetation remaining in New Zealand, comprising 2.8 million hectares. Half of the native vegetation that occurs on sheep and beef farms, or around 1.4 million hectares, is woody, which is old growth and regenerating forest. This represents 17% of the total native woody vegetation remaining in New Zealand. Moreover, native woody vegetation on sheep and beef farms is particularly important because it typically occurs in those parts of New Zealand with the least remaining native woody vegetation and where there is proportionally less public conservation land, especially at lower altitudes and in drier regions. Based on the results from this study, remnants of native vegetation, especially woody vegetation, on sheep and beef farms are critical for biodiversity conservation both on the farm and for landscape level biodiversity outcomes. Remnants of native woody vegetation will benefit from stock exclusion and feral animal control and will regenerate towards a more mature condition if managed accordingly. 
Farmers are already engaged in stock exclusion and the protection of these areas, which is fantastic to see. More research is required to further understand the actual composition of native woody vegetation on sheep and beef farms and the way that it has changed over recent decades. Native vegetation sequesters carbon and farmers need to be rewarded for this. I agree with David that any credit for native vegetation should not be tradable but it should indeed allow farmers to offset their own emissions. The next cab off the rank is the proposed national policy statement for indigenous biodiversity. A thought for our Environment Minister David Parker who is also responsible for trade and export growth. Before launching into more regulation, consider how important farming is to New Zealand's economy, which has been acknowledged this year by government. At the same time, the government made big policy decisions that increase pressure and has threatened those same group of businesses. That being said, farmers do want to and are improving their practices, but deeper engagement is required from the beehive with farmers to ensure policies are realistic and workable for all. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factor Magri.